0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone in the New Books Network listening audience out there. My name is Erica Monahan and I am your host today for an interview I'm very excited about. Today, I am speaking with Ryan Jones. Ryan Jones is the Anne Swindles Professor of Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Oregon. He is also the co-editor of the Journal of Pacific History, and when you hear the books that he's written, you'll understand why. His first book was is called Empire of Extinction, Russians and the North Pacific's Strange Beasts of the Sea, 1741 to 1867, a fantastic book that I was lucky enough to be asked to review for the American Historical Review. And his second book, he moves far forward in time. It just came out this year. And this book deals with the 20th century, and it's called Red Leviathan, The Secret History of Soviet Whaling. That is the book we're talking about today with Ryan. And so, Ryan, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us today.
0: Erica, thanks for that kind invitation. I'm delighted to be here with you.
1: Super. Well, Ryan, if you uh, if you are... Um, Familiar with the New Books Network interviews, you know you know that usually we start out asking everyone um, the same question, and that's because most many of our audience they're not historians, they um, and they might be interested in the strange ways, uh, the strange and varied ways that people become historians. So I'd like to ask you, um, and it occurs to me that I've talked to you many times about history, but I myself have never quite found out from you what how you became a historian. So could you please tell us? A little bit about your path into becoming a historian
0: yeah I'm, a, I'm afraid it's not so strange or exciting i mean probably like a lot of people well i grew up in a small town rural town in northern california and and in oregon and yeah history for me from the first time that uh, i started dipping into history books just opened up this incredibly interesting strange exotic world in so many places uh, to me that I I found it absolutely irresistible just thinking of the incredibly different ways that people have lived on this earth and throughout history. Um, For me, it was just a mind-expanding experience and that basic curiosity has carried me through for, you know, I I don't even care to count the number of years now that uh, I've been uh, thinking of myself as a historian. It was really my love in high school. And uh, I began college as a history major and I'm still doing the same thing. And there's still more worlds uh, to discover.
1: Super. Thank you. Um, Okay. Now a more specific question. Why did you write Red Leviathan?
0: Yeah, that is, well, this, the story that I, I settled on Russian history, um, I don't know, maybe for reasons similar to yourself, uh, visiting Russia during a really interesting uh, period in its own history in the 1990s and, and living there and getting to know this society that was so different from my own. But when, one thing that really uh, sustained me and, and and I guess in some ways changed my interest in Russian history was understanding the ways that it connected actually uh, with with my own life uh, and my own personal history, and one of those ways, one probably the most powerful ways, is the, the way that the ocean, the Pacific Ocean in particular, connected uh, Russia with places that I grew up in, the Pacific Northwest, places that I had spent a lot of time in, places like Alaska. And when I first read kind of an outline history of the the story of Russian whaling, specifically Soviet whaling, and the the huge numbers of whales that they'd killed in the 20th century. I thought, hey, hold on here. The the oceans that I grew up with and you know, when I went whale watching as a kid off the coast of California uh, were oceans that were deeply impacted by the Soviet Union. Isn't that crazy? I mean, this place that was so far away, across the the Iron Curtain, you know, a place that seemed like the ultimate other to me when I was a kid uh, was actually having a really deep impact on places that me were were really familiar and so that that connected me instantly to the story and i thought i've got to know more about this um someone needs to write this history why not me and then as i dug more and more deeply into it i thought you know this is actually in my opinion one of the the most important stories of the 20th century especially uh, in terms of the environment this incredible removal of whales from the ocean ecosystem, so it, it it not only had kind of a personal resonance, but I also felt a uh, really a a global resonance as well.
1: Huh. Y- yes, that's you know that's remarkable. And now to hear you say that, it makes so so much sense. You have this chapter, um, called "Cetacean Genocide," where you I'm speaking of a personal resonance. You begin with this fantastic story of actually um, encountering whale in the ocean, which I uh, that maybe you could tell us about, but also then you go on to talk about the life waves and the nutrition of whales. And I was reading this just thinking, you really are telling a global story. I mean, we're all globalization this, globalization that, and here are animals that for millennia have really been covering the globe to feed themselves, to have their babies. So um, maybe you could say a little bit more about that and tell us about when you met a whale.
0: Yeah. So I wrote a lot of this book while I was living in New Zealand and teaching at the University of Auckland and had the, the great opportunity to travel through the Pacific Islands. And in Tonga, uh, it's one of the few places in the world where you can swim with whales. And I, I took my um, my wife and my two small kids then, uh, and we went swimming with humpback whales, which is a remarkable experience. It kind of... Well, uh, you know, I left we jumped in the water, we, we swam with this huge mother whale and its calf, you know, came within 10, 15 feet of it, looked uh, it in the eye, saw it swim away from us. And it, it was an experience which left me in awe, of course, uh, that's kind of the stereotypical experience, but also, also puzzled by what all of this meant. And it was one of those moments, well, it, it left me with a few thoughts, one of which is that these animals, which are very familiar in some ways, we recognize the mother-child bond uh, in a way you know that was that I was also experiencing as I was raising my own kids, and I could see this whale uh, undergoing something um, similar. You know, it's something that most mammals go through, but but also the 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 incredible alienation that we have from them that they live in this totally different medium. They're living lives which which. Which seem familiar, but when you're at, when you're right up next to them, you also realize the vast ga- uh, um, gap that exists between us. So that that was one thing that I struggled with through the book, and I think it's one of the things which makes the human cetacean relationship um, really interesting, problematic as well, uh, because we are and have been throughout history actually between different ways of relating to these animals. Uh, we see this in, in the Soviet story repeatedly, where some humans are really touched by the moments when they you know, they sever these familial bonds, they kill these animals, and it's really disturbing to them. On the other hand, we see, uh, we see many people killing them with, without the slightest hint of regret. Uh, these animals are so bizarre to them uh, is so difficult to connect to, uh, that killing them actually was quite easy for a lot of people. And I, I mean, I, I wasn't really thinking about killing these animals, but I, I understood in a sense how one could have these very opposing feelings. The other thing I understood or that I felt as I was encountering these whales was the realization that I couldn't really begin to understand their lives actually without a sense of their history. And the history of this mother and calf pair was almost certainly connected to those, uh, to the history of the Soviet Union. The Soviets had killed exactly this population of Southern Hemisphere humpback whales uh, while they were feeding in the Antarctic in their summer. This mother whale that I saw, uh, very likely uh, her own parents had been killed in this in vast slaughter of the 1960s and
1: uh, 1950s. Yeah, thank you for that. Um- yeah, even your comments just there capture so much of the the complication and the kind of humanity and cruelty that is laced through with this book. And um, aside from a lot of really beautiful language, like I think you, you have this wonderful turn of phrase that I'm going to butcher here, but about like a cold, local, liquid world that they live in or something. And so, yeah, it, I mean, it was really a pleasure to read and, and the book captures so much of that. And there are a lot of easy answers here. But let, let let's dive into the book. Um, so the um, oh, and I do just want to say I don't know if we'll get to it, but the book there's several encounters as you kind of hinted at of you know how a particular encounter uh, moves or doesn't individuals in this book with um indivi- encounters with a whale moves or doesn't individuals in the book, and so if if we don't get more to that, people can get the book and read it. But okay. So your book starts and ends with the Dalny Vostok. What is the Dalny Vostok and why does it, you know, tell us about it. What is it? When does it happen? And why does it, ha- what role does it play in your book?
0: Yeah, the Dalny Vostok was maybe my first introduction to Soviet whaling and certainly uh, much of the world's first introduction. So this was a particularly, I guess, ill-starred, soviet whale ship which came out of vladivostok Donny means the far east uh was was it had its home base there and was one of the last soviet whalers was part of a huge buildup of a so the soviet whaling uh fleet in the 1960s and it was it became the target of greenpeace as most successful maybe the most successful environmentalist direct action campaign in history that is in 1975, uh, Greenpeace encountered the Dahlia just off the coast of California and really 30, 40 miles on a place called the Mendocino Banks. And it was there that Greenpeace attempted to position itself, uh, small Zodiac inflatable boats between the Dahlia Vostok and the sperm whales that the Dahlia was hunting. They did that and they took really dramatic footage, uh, video footage of this encounter with the, one of the captains of the catcher boats firing a harpoon over the head of a Greenpeace volunteers, people who would uh, later become uh, famous, uh, like people like Paul Watson, who had Sea Shepherd today. Uh, they, they brought that footage back and broadcast it around the world. And it, uh, it's, I think it's no exaggeration to say, you know, this was the moment that the modern environmentalist movement was born. Uh, It was a moment which resonated with people around the world, brought to their attention for the first time, really, uh, what what Greenpeace and others saw as the horrors of modern industrial whaling Uh, was what Greenpeace, uh, borrowing from the philosopher uh, Marshall McLuhan, called a mind bomb, something which would instantly detonate around the world and change global consciousness. Uh, In a sense, it did. What I found so interesting about this moment, I mean, the story's been well told by Frank Zelko and others uh, in his book about Greenpeace, Robert Hunter's own account, which is incredible. In my mind, the sort of equivalent of Moby Dick in the 20th century, his account of Greenpeace's origins, a really unbelievable read, recommended to everybody. But what I found so interesting here was, you know, the Soviet, the Soviet sailors uh, who appear in all of these pictures as a kind of Backdrop to the main drama, which is these Western environmentalists saving the world, uh, they're these kind of nameless, uh, almost faceless villains. And I thought, who are these people? You know, how do I get into their side of the story? How can we understand this moment uh, in a much more complex, much more historically detailed way? And uh, in, in in many ways, that was the origin point of the book. Uh, and which uh, a scene that I then come back to in the last chapter, trying to bring a much deeper historical comprehension to help people make sense of, you know, the the the, the whole complex world that was involved in this moment in 1975.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, okay, let's go to those nameless, faceless whalers in the background. Um, they play a complicated role in this story. And, and you know, I was really struck by... You know me, the history I write. The people have been dead for centuries, right? And but here you, and that's the way it was for you in your first book too. And then now you've come into this this time period where you use a whole lot of documents, and you go places, and you see things, and you talk to people who were were involved. So I guess, um, gosh, the you know historian in me might talk ask you about methodological ins and outs, but let's just stay with the story here. So so these whalers. They play a complicated role in this history that you've written, and and what do you, what would you like the reader to come away with, concerning them?
0: Yeah, that's right, Eric. I mean, working with old documents in some ways is so much easier than with living people. I mean, I I met I met whalers, I met some former whalers in the three key whaling boards of Vladivostok in the Far East, Kaliningrad in the Baltic, and then Odessa, uh, and the Black Sea, and in. in is today, Ukraine, and all of those meetings challenged me. Certainly, I, I won't make any secret of the fact that I came into this book, and well, I came out of this book as well—a kind of passionate defender of of whales' lives. I mean, that was one of the reasons I wrote this book is I think that the slaughter, uh, which was was unprecedented in some ways in human history, uh, needs to be. Commemorated, memorialized in some way and that, that emerged as one of the reasons for writing this book, and and not just the Soviet Union who did this. Let me stress that, but the Soviets played an important role. But of course, when you meet the people who are actually involved in what was going on, many um, of them were wonderful people. You know, they, they they killed hundreds, thousands of whales, but uh, of course they they had their reasons for doing this. They had complicated. Relationships to their own work, to the animals that they were working with, uh, they I, they could couldn't my my ideas couldn't help but be complicated, and and I tried to write the book to do justice to both the the victims and the story, which are clearly clearly the whales here, uh, but also the people um, who made their lives in an industry which until the 1970s very few people, Americans included, would have condemned. I mean, was not seen as something uh, something evil, was not seen as, as something, well, it was seen by many people as something irresponsible. And I did try to grapple with this as well because many uh, whalers were actually quite aware that what they were doing was completely unsustainable and probably uh, was going to lead to the extinction of certain species. Uh, so you know, uh, much of the book, is concerned with trying to unpack the kind of anthropology of who the Soviet whaler was, where they came from, uh, what drove them, what they were doing on board, things like this, to, to, to try to give a, a, a much richer picture of uh, you know of of this really reckless industry.
1: Yeah, thank you. And okay, and it seems along those lines. Tell us about the Soviet whaling boat you um, as it seems to me that you play with but don't commit to a notion of the Soviet whaling boat as a microcosm of Soviet society let me know if I have misread you here but the um so and maybe you know what was it like what technology does it have we haven't touched on the technology that's a big part of this story and you know we're historians so we're keeping track of why things change over time Uh, so I want to ask you about that but I also want to ask you about the you know the anthropology or an ethnography of the Soviet whaling boat? And how did um, and how did co- the collectivism manifest or not? And I'll just even add a little bit of a personal comment. You know, we hear this word, collective, and it sounds pretty much like collective. Okay, people doing things together. Based on my experience of, of living in Russia, the, that word, collective, has collective, has so much meaning. And even, um, you know, maybe you have, no doubt, you have um, stories like this too, you know, going camping, going into mountains with Russians where the, you know, it is understood that people will cook together, will will contribute to the food pot together. And even, you know, there's campsites out in the um, Yastrobinaya region, north of St. Petersburg, near in the Kare- Karelia Woods, where I used to go to, where there's these campsites where everyone has, um, there's just pots and silverware buried under under some rock in the lake. And everyone that goes there knows about it. And I said, oh, you know, people don't need to bring their own things. And they said, that's collective. So, so that that's kind of a little bit where I'm coming from. Uh, tell us about the Soviet whaling boat, please.
0: Well, you, you put it beautifully and, and said it with such passion to a collective. It's nice to hear it uh, imbued with the kind of emotion that really I discovered. Uh, in the text, too, that I was reading. So yeah, it's true and it's not true that the Soviet whaleship was a microcosm of Soviet society. It is was, was untrue in that uh, it was ethnically very skewed towards Russians and Ukrainians. Uh, the Soviet Union, as you well know, is an eth- ethnically very diverse place. And the history of whaling in the Russian Empire is very ethnically diverse as well. People like uh, you know Chukchi, Uh, et cetera, played played an important role. But the modern industrial whale ship in the Soviet Union, uh, which really came into its own after the Second World War, was a place of high modernist technology. And that was always a point of pride uh, for Soviet whalers. It was in that sense an expression of what was going to be the best about the Soviet Union. Highly mechanized, highly collective, uh, highly efficient, uh, also um highly scientifically informed work this is what was supposed to take place and as a result you needed highly work, uh, highly educated workers and so that inevitably skewed the workforce uh towards ukrainians and Russians now I, I didn't see you know it I wrote this book of course before the invasion of Ukraine and uh but I, I wasn't maybe as attentive to Russian-Ukrainian relations as I would have been, but I I, t- I didn't see much much ethnic tension there uh, on the whale ship, uh, even places, th- there was some tension between places like Odessa and Vladivostok, but, uh, but by and large, uh, Ukrainians and Russians uh, seemed to get along pretty well on the whale ship, but it was almost entirely Ukrainians and Russians. Now, one of the special features of the soviet whale ship compared to other countries whale ships uh, and this was very deliberate on the soviet's part was that women had to be included uh you know whaling was always a very male dominated industry in fact you know norwegians just absolutely prohibited women from being on board as bad luck was going to ruin the whole, whole industry uh, the Soviets, uh, even though they learned modern whaling as everyone did from the Norwegians, insisted from the beginning: "Look, we're a, we're a modern, scientific, enlightened society. Women are going to be a part of this." And so, when women were ever present, and that became a really important feature, actually, of Soviet whalers, uh, they made sure any time they went to a foreign port, to profile uh, the women on board, to to showcase them, to display them, to make sure that. They were giving a picture of a modern, uh, Soviet union. This was for many people around the world, the only contact they had with real Soviet people, uh, and they made sure to stress that women were not just cooking and cleaning staff. They were also scientists on board. There were also women hunters, uh, harpooners. In fact, there were some catcher boats that were run entirely by women. Admittedly, the Soviets exaggerated this. In fact, the reality, when one looks a little bit deeper, is that most women, ninety percent of women, probably were cooking and cleaning staff on board these whale ships, and they were subject to sexual harassment. Uh, they had a lot of problems, which of course the Soviets were not talking about when they went into port. Uh, but nonetheless, this was the, this was for 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 Soviets very important that they uh, exhibit the sort of highest ideals of Soviet society. And as you put it the Soviet collective, and that was something that I found repeatedly stressed here was, was the kind of emotionally fulfilling aspects of this work. The idea that you're, you're away from home for five, six, even seven months at a time. You're in the Antarctic as far away as possible from Russia on this earth. Uh, you have to stick together. Your, your collective is what is measured it, its output its efficiency are measured that it's rewarded or it's punished if it's falling behind uh, if if someone's drinking alcohol uh, on board and f- uh, failing in their tac- uh in their in their tasks your entire collective is going to bear the consequences of that this and in, in the published and many unpublished sources that I looked at, Uh, was the kind of central uh, emotional experience of working on board the Soviet whale ship. And I have to say, for most people, it was really a positive experience. Uh, You were paid well. You came home in triumph almost every year because catches were increasing and increasing through the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, Soviet whalers came home as something like uh, rock stars, uh, early cosmonauts, bearing the responsibility of the country uh, throughout the hostile capitalist world. I'll stop there for now, Erica, because I could keep going, but I, I want to make sure to break it up and not just do mo- a monologue here.
1: Uh, yeah, thanks. No, it's great. I could I, I could just keep listening. i would even read the book and I could just keep listening with, um, with pleasure for a long time, too, and it, but it occurs to me, okay. So, putting on my historian hat, what's the chronology here? To even back up a little bit, you um, you know, you give us a little introduction. We start with this, um, you know, this um, Greenpeace encounter with the Dalnyvest stock, and then you get into um, chapter three, revolution and whaling. So maybe what, in just super broad strokes, for you know, not non-historians, what are what's the chronolo- chronology and the contours of what happens in this history?
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things I find interesting is that the history of Soviet whaling quite nicely parallels the history of the Soviet Union in some ways. Some of the broad trends of the Soviet Union and uh, actually the history of modern whaling, which began in the 1920s and ended in 1987, for all practical purposes, also very closely dovetails the history of the Soviet Union. And I think there's some suggestive, really, really interesting parallels there. So, you know, to start with, it, whaling had, had been a goal of the imperial Russian regime, I'm mostly uh, frustrated, but but it became uh, one of the goals of, uh, of Stalin's uh, plans of industrialization as well. And uh, with the second five-year plan in 1932, the first Soviet whaling fleet was launched with all the kind of revolutionary ideas of gender equality and uh, scientifically based conservation. By the way, this was one of the central kind of values of the first Soviet whaling, fleet, the Aleut, uh, which hunted in North Pacific waters. Uh, Now there's a messy, complicated story there. Certainly the the Aleut did not always fulfill its conservation dictate, uh, although it's notable that uh, the, the Aleut forbade the hunting of North Pacific gray whales. Uh, one of the first countries to undertake this conservation measure, and that was based on the science that was being done on board the Aleut. So so there, there was some real conservation taking place in the early days of the Soviet whaling fleet. Now, World War II interrupted uh, the Aleut, and it also uh, gave new life to the Soviet whaling industry. The Soviets took over a former Nazi whaling ship, Nazis are called the Vikinger. the Soviets renamed it the Slava glory, um, obviously in commemoration of the victory over the Nazis. And, and with that began Soviet whaling in the Antarctic, which was the preeminent field of whaling in the 20th century, largely untouched populations of blue whales, fin whales, say, say whales, other large, uh, very oil rich species which the Soviets gained entrance to in the uh, late 1940s and early 1950s, the successes that the Slava in particular brought the Soviet Union convinced them to expand under Nikita Khrushchev to become the largest whaling country in the world by around 1963. Now, the irony there was that the early 1960s was the time when most of the whaling world had come to the bitter conclusion that they had killed far too many whales in the Antarctic despite attempts to try to restrain their, uh, their whaling industries. They, cre- they created the International Whaling Commission in 1946 to try to put some limits on this. They had totally failed and countries like Norway and the United Kingdom were just exiting whaling. Uh, because it was no longer profitable, when the Soviets began a gigantic expansion of their own whaling effort, uh, disastrous for the world's oceans, as you can imagine, um, they and the Japanese became uh, the world's largest whalers in the 1960s and 1970s. And look, by the time the Greenpeace encountered the the Vostok in 1975, the the dynamics of whaling had changed. Most of the large whales had been Killed many of them illegally by the Soviet Union uh, in the late in the in the mid '60s in the early '70s. The industry uh, was no longer upping its catches every year. Uh, work discipline, as is well known throughout the Soviet Union, was slipping. Uh, the, the story of the Donestvo tells part of that tale. You know, people uh, were lost overboard. Uh, People were probably, you know, probably inebriated through much of the trip. The Dalnebostok was starting to experiment with catching small fish in the Sea of Okhotsk. It was a failing industry, and and that is reflected uh, in the morale of the people on board as well, which was clearly much lower by the 1970s than it had been in the 50s and 60s.
1: Thank you. Um, Okay, I'd like to go to scientists, another group that play a really important role in the story. Um, and you've started to talk about this as well. Um, what would you like the reader to come away about Soviet whaling science, scientists? You have a number of really compelling portraits. And, and I, maybe if you want to tell us about one of the scientists that you um, you know, want us to hear about.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah i mean the scientists were just absolutely fascinating to me you know the soviet you know, russia in general has an incredible scientific tradition as you well know you know at least since the time of the creation of the academy of sciences uh russia has invested uh, all sorts of resources and prestige in its scientific research and this is borne out in the whaling industry you know it's very poorly known in the history of cetology, the study of whales, uh, that the Soviets were uh, doing cutting-edge, really innovative research from the 1930s on. In part because in their their research just was not able to be shared, and in part because uh, they were they were working with illegally gathered specimens, they couldn't publish their real research in many cases in international journals. But the story is is really fascinating. Uh, Soviet scientists were, were part of the Soviet whaling industry from the very beginning, and in a way that was pretty unique throughout the world. They were, they were embedded on board Soviet whale ships, the two um, different oceanographic institutes, uh, different fisheries institutes, the Academy of Sciences as well, all the, the kind of uh, hoary old uh, institutions, as well as the new ones, which were created under Stalin. Uh, to increase catches in the oceans, scientists were were came from all of these institutes and were on board. And in that sense, you know, they had unique access in the 20th century to observations of whales, dead whales, but also live whales as they were being pursued uh, in ways that you know, can't be said really of Norway, uh, the United States, or Great Britain, who did have you know, sci- it did have scientists studying whales, but often from the shore. Uh, in the case in the United States, which really didn't have a whaling industry after the second world war, they, they couldn't deal for the most part with dead whales. So uh, the Soviets had unique access. The Soviet scientists did. And they were put on board you know, with kind of two aims to increase the number of whales that were going to be caught, but also to give a sense to economic planners of how many whales could be caught. You know, what were the ecological limits? Uh, This was really important uh, for planning the future of the industry. And it was something which the Soviet Union really considered uh, to be a greater advantage of the planned economy, that unlike the capitalists who were just going to fish down, fish down until it was no longer profitable, the Soviet Union could peer into the future thanks to its scientists and and plan rationally and to make sure not to draw down uh, irresponsibly the number of whales that it would depend on. That didn't always work out. <laughs> in fact, there were, uh, tragically, scientists warned Khrushchev in the late 50s and the early 1960s not to expand the industry. They, they gave very clear warnings. Look, like, this is disastrous. In fact, some of the clearest warnings we have uh, of any scientist anywhere in the world that, that whale stocks were on the verge of extinction. This is what they said. It would be uh, economically and morally Irresponsible to expand our whaling fleets. Well, at that moment of truth, um, the Soviet system failed. There's no other way to put it. You know, the, the planners ignored the scientific advice which they had wisely put at the center of economic planning, and that's one of the key stories of the book. Certainly, as when push came to shove, uh, the kind of the the highest visions of Soviet society failed. On the other hand, okay, that you know, I, I that's part of the story, but. Uh, the, the scientists also gave us really interesting insights into whales' lives, unique insights, and that, of course, changed their own relationships with whales. I'll take one example: a guy who I didn't know anything about um, to begin with, uh, but learned a lot in the process reading his works and hearing his his former colleagues talk about a, ma- a man by the name of, of, of Aviendh Tamilan. Uh, Tamilan got his start in the Black Sea. Where the Soviets had a small dolphin fishing industry in the 1930s, and he studied dolphins on board these ships, and he he noticed something really interesting, which was that when you netted a whole school of dolphins, uh, the mothers who were outside the net who hadn't been caught were able in this thrashing, you know, um, screaming um, pod of dolphins to locate their own children, uh, and he he thought about this and. Uh, It must have been horrible, by the way, but he thought, okay, this is is clearly a sign that not only do dolphins communicate somehow, but they have some way of individually locating familiar individuals within the pod. This is something which uh, Western scientists in the 1990s, 60 years later, started calling uh, signature whistles, uh, that recognize that each dolphin has their own signature way, kind of like a name of identifying themselves to each other. So Tamilan looked at this and thought, wow, dolphins have just this unbelievably sophisticated uh, communication ability, communicative ability that we had no idea about you mm-hmm. published these kinds of things and uh you know within the Soviet Union and uh, led others to conduct similar kind of testing with with dolphins which led Soviets to conclude that, uh, dolphins were capable of altruism, which was another really important uh, thing that the, the Soviet scientists were concerned with because altruism was important in collective societies as well. And if this was somehow uh natural non-human species, then it might be present in humans as well. But one of the interesting things is, to, you know, one of the conclusions that Tamilan drew from this, this presence of what we call signature uh, whistles is that if we can just learn these clicks, then we can make them on board and actually draw whales to ourselves. And the catching is basically already done. I thought, wow, you know, the, the same kind of idea, which, uh, you know, whale scientists like Roger Payne and, and, uh, uh, Lily in the 1960s for, you know, for whom this was a sort of sign of the, the mystical intelligence of whales for Tamilin was like a, an incredible economic breakthrough. Now, Tamilin, to Tam, me, I don't want to be too cynical about Tamilan. Um, He had a, a long and developing career during the Second World War. He uh, he trained dogs to run under tanks, and blow up Nazi tanks. So, you know, he had a kind of intimate relationship with animals throughout his life. And then in 1974, you know, around the same time of, of the Greenpeace protests, he came out with a with a book that was a sort of people call it the Bible of Soviet cytology, which was a really popular work called um, uh, Man's Friend, the Dolphin, uh, or I'm sorry, strike that. Let me remember exactly what it was called. I think it was just called Whales and Dolphins, Kiti and Delphini. Uh, but in that book, he presented a completely kind of Different attitude towards whales and dolphins. He he rehashed some of his really groundbreaking work, uh, emphasizing the intelligence of whales and dolphins, uh, based in part on their unique communicative abilities. But he also pushed for much greater conservation majors. I mean, he said, look, uh, dolphins are like dogs, they're like man's best friend. You know, these are docile helpful creatures, a very different picture than most Soviet people were used to uh, reading about. And he, he, he uh, was very worried at that point, um, based on his kind of insider knowledge of what was going on in the industry, that the Soviet Union and the Japanese were now were killing these marvelous creatures to the point where they were almost extinct. And uh, even he went so far as to recommend a 50-year moratorium on killing whales and dolphins, a really kind of remarkable transformation, uh, that was enabled by his, his close relationship with whales and dolphins, uh, throughout his life. And one which I think was very important, uh, for the Soviet union, the Soviet public as a whole, uh, the Soviet public by 1975, uh, you know, the, though the Soviet whalers had, had emerged in the, uh, Global cautiousness is this kind of evil force. many Soviet people were were reading Tamilin, were reading other scientists like Alexey Yablokov, uh, and his mentor uh, uh, Kleinenberg and coming to a very different conclusion, really uh, starting to turn against their own industry. you know the the power of the Soviet scientists was not just you know in small technical papers, but they wrote broadly for a, a wide public, and we're very influential in the long run in changing Russians' own conception of whales as well. That's a long answer to a short question in America.
1: So did the Soviets stop whaling because of pressure from within or pressure from without or economic rationale or environmental concerns? or? And when did they stop whaling?
0: Now that, that's one of the questions that I that I found most surprisingly, perhaps most difficult to answer. It, it's, it's the Soviet sub-whaling in 1987 with the introduction of the International Whaling uh, convent, Commission, sorry, 10-year moratorium on commercial whaling, which has now been extended. Uh, in, in it's now uh, permanent until it gets overturned, at least. Uh, the Soviets ended up going along with that. Why? Why did they agree to in this industry? Well, it's some combination of all of the things that you mentioned there, Erica. No question, it was due in part to pressure put on them by the United States, and and that really had to do with access to uh, fishing, rich fishing waters off the coasts of Washington, Oregon, and to a lesser degree Alaska, uh, which had become really important for the Soviet economy as it started to crater in the 19, late 1970s and, and mid-1980s, uh, this, the United States uh, basically traded uh, fish within our 200-mile zone um, for uh, the end of Soviet whaling, in part. Um, so that, that that was a pressure. Uh, that pressure, I think, alone was perhaps not enough. Again, it was... It was the, this, this, was, this was the hardest parts of the Soviet archives to access for me. And so I never received, I never got a completely satisfactory answer. Uh, but certainly the changing environmental relationship to, uh, under um, already under Brezhnev and then definitely under Gorbachev. Uh, and Alex, it bears uh, keeping in mind that Alex Yablokov, uh, who was one of the most important whale scientists, became... Minister for the Environment uh, in the uh, late 1980s. And it seems that a combination of diminished or really non existent public support, uh, I could read it in letters to the editor, you know, really aggressively challenging the Soviets' insistence that they keep on whaling. Because there were hardliners for sure in the fisheries ministry, there were people uh, who wanted to keep going. At all costs, uh, even as uh, this industry uh, was smaller and smaller, perhaps it's hard to tell, but perhaps uh, not making any money. Although some people uh, claim it was still, or was making money for the first time in the 1970s and 1980s. uh, Some combination of all of the above, though, uh, convinced uh, the Soviets to, to go along with the moratorium. Uh, in, in nineteen eighty seven, and, and I wouldn't say it was entirely foreign pressure. It was definitely you know, the Soviet public definitely played a role, and Soviet scientists definitely played a role as well. Uh, they were all involved to some degree.
1: Yeah, it's, thank you. The um, yeah, That book. You know, I really um, sympathized and I appreciated your sleuthing when you talk a bit in the book about uh, your efforts to find. These documents and these minutes, and going down these rabbit holes, only to find the files redacted and cut, not there, you know, not there. Oh, and so frustrating. <laughs> they they wanted to keep that story quiet. Um, I want to ask you. Well, I want to ask you more about whales, and then I want to go to the end of the story. Maybe let me ask you a little bit more about whales here. Um, this is something, you know, we you use the word murder and genocide when you talk about whales and i think about how we you know we as humans that aren't you know vegans have particular commitments and vegetarians have commitments but carnivorous humans are involved in killing constantly for our daily nutrition and, and have been for millennia and et cetera. but and then but as we learn about whales as and mammals of the sea as individuals with sustained, complex family relationships with social lives, with not just language, but actually dialects, with memory. Um, And this applies to, you know, primates and elephants too, I I guess, but maybe not in the lane that the, and I'm not expert at all in this, but certainly, uh, you know, I'm aware that work about various dialects and whale populations across the the globe I and mean, it's so remarkable and it really pushes this question of you know, how can we tell these beings if we know this much about them and i also you know i'm thinking about i was in california for graduate school and there was often um it seemed that occasionally in the news um the issue of sound testings underwater and how much they disturbed whale populations. And will this happen or will this not happen? And so, and what seems to be, you know, even, uh, these acts that we can sit back and say, you know, we can't act against these and we shouldn't murder these animals and we shouldn't impair their lives. And yet, you know, it continues. And I guess, um, I'm sorry, that's more than a comment than a question, but I guess I'm interested in, um, Hearing your thoughts or take on this emerging understanding of whales, which you really talked about, Soviets, although they didn't share it with the world, being out in front on. How much does it track internationally of a kind of the stories? Let's see. How much is the story of uh, uh, evolving knowledge about whale culture a global one?
0: Yeah, definitely a global. Well, I would say at least a kind of shared amongst Western scientific cultures, uh, of which I would in certainly include the Soviets and, and the Japanese, really as well. Uh, and uh, of course, I, I don't think we'll, we have time to get into this necessarily, but in some ways, an understanding of whales as purposeful social creatures is is a discovery that is just a rediscovery of something that uh, many indigenous people around the world have known for a very long time in a very different way with a different language and um, certainly important differences in that conception and yet some important similarities as well. Certainly Western scientists are not the only ones who are increasingly coming to this picture of complex emotional uh, and social uh, historical and cultural lives of whales. You know, I wonder, I do want to make something clear here is that, so I had Soviet whalers just ask me, it's, so what's the difference between a whale and a pig, you know, which people slaughter and eat without a second thought all the time. And uh, I don't think there is one, uh, you know, I'm not trying to make the claim that somehow whales stand on this in, in some unique place in our, uh, in this world that deserve Consideration that we shouldn't extend to any other animal. Now, I do think, though, that there is something unique about their history and their relationship with humans and their experience of the 20th century, and and that there is something unique about the human relationship with them that I felt called for the a word like genocide, and and that is that the very few um, large animals to and large mammals, to whom we have some access uh, into their lives. Let me rephrase that, into whose lives we have some access. Uh, I've experienced something like what whales did in the 20th century. And that was a, you know, what must have been from their perspective, a very determined uh, attempt to eradicate them entirely, certain species, at least specifically, uh, especially the big ones like uh, blue whales, humpback whales, fin whales. Uh, and, you know, sperm whales to some degree as well, you know, they, and, and humans were very aware of what they were doing you know, when the Soviets well, I, I have this picture, which, which shocked me of, of, of when I first saw it, a group of Soviet whalers, uh, in 1936, on board with a North Pacific right whale, very rare species. And someone, one of the whalers presumably has inscribed this postcard that says the very last, uh, right whale, uh, in the North Pacific, um, an animal that they had caught and killed. Now, I don't know what the intent exactly of inscribing it with that regret pride. I'm not sure, but what I am sure of is that there was a very clear knowledge that you are dealing with a species which has you know been around for millions of years in this habitat, uh, which you are bringing very close to total extinction, um, if not. I mean, the, 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 this group apparently felt that they had perhaps killed the very last uh, member of this species. Now, now that's something that I think we need to remember and I think we need to grapple with. I, I don't lay, it's, it's not... Uh, specifically, Soviet story, right? I mean, uh, the Norwegians killed more whales in the 20th century than the Soviet Union did. I do think the Soviets had a unique role, coming late and really delivering a kind of near death blow to the these species. But still, this is this is a story that that really many humans around the world shared in the 20th century. Basically, every whale in the ocean shared in the 20th century. What was what, what did it mean to continue this hunt, to continue the slaughter beyond economic rationality uh, to nearly the last uh, in, uh, individual? I mean, there are estimates that there were something like 200 blue whales left in the Antarctic uh, by the late 1960s. Yeah, that's incredible. And uh, that's that it's, it's, hard, it's hard to find many Many, there are certainly some, but many parallels with this kind of conscious uh, drive to near extinction. Um, and so in in that sense, I think that, that this story deserves that kind of language.
1: Thank you. You know what? And um, with that, you mentioned that Norway killed more whales than the Soviet Union. And um, that that reminds me of this other kind of international aspect that I wanted to Ask you about at the and it comes at the end of the book. Um, the Soviet Union has ended. This is in your conclusion, and you talk about how the um, Soviet whalers who have been keeping. Um, you talk, I don't want to give away the whole book, right? <laughs> but you talk about how some people have been keeping accurate catches while the Soviet Union has been officially lying to the international community about its catches. And so, at an early post-Soviet meeting. These uh, whalers show up, and they disclose the faked numbers of their cat their catches on the world stage, and they ex- and you write about they expect reciprocity because they think other countries have cheated too, and that reciprocity that shared disclosure does not come, and that it, when you talk about this story mirroring the whole story, I just I think about that. How do you see that? In a, in a larger story of, well, East West, if we can call it that, although that's not the quite the right term. Or, uh, I mean, should we say grievance politics? Because to editorialize, it definitely seems like a, grievous poli- a grievance politics um, plays a role in driving Russia's war against Ukraine right now. And to the extent that there is domestic support for that war, it is fed by a sort of grievance politics. So,
0: yeah that this, you know I, again I was writing this before the war but but of course it's that I I've, I've returned since the war started I've returned to this specific aspect of the story on several occasions in my mind you know the, so when I talked to the Russian scientists who who revealed these numbers um, who really heroically kept them despite persecution uh, during the height of the Soviet illegal whaling, this was at the forefront, at least of some of their minds, you know, just how big of a mistake it had been to trust the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I guess I never, it was hard for me to completely understand this viewpoint, you know, that I think there's, it's pretty clear the Soviet union was, was, was unique in the, at least the scale. Of their, uh, of their deception, um, not the only ones to fudge numbers. I'm sure that they're, they're correct in that. Uh, and it, the same sense of grievance—I think that's the right word, Erica—was a part of the the reason for pursuing whaling in the way that the Soviets had done. You know, they, had, they had built up a long history of resentment of others coming in and catching whales just off the shores of the Russian empire, especially in Siberia, but also the Arctic. And uh, it was, many Soviets said that quite explicitly, look, uh, we've been victims for a long time. It's our turn. And one can, there's obviously a truth to that in Russian history. We're both both aware of that, right? Russia has uh, had the misfortune. Uh, to, to suffer at the hands of especially advanced uh, aggressive western countries and yet you know this the, the solutions of more aggression and in this case more destruction of wales uh, it's a nihilistic solution you know it's it's just brought more pain and suffering around the world so i'm i'm not i'm not trying to signal out russia in this case as specifically or particularly uh, aggressive and horrible but uh, and and grievance uh, grievances as I write at the end of the book is another word for history uh, in Russia often um it, yeah I, w- I don't want to essentialize but it's a clearly a it's a recurrent pattern um, and a destructive and a self-destructive pattern as well and I, I wish we could see a way out of it
1: Ryan Jones thank you very much you have written an important and compelling and beautifully written book. Thank you for um, talking to me about it today. And I really, there's so much more in here than than we touched on today. So um, if you listened and you've been somewhat interested, please pick up the book, Red Leviathan, The Secret History of Soviet Whaling and read it for yourselves. Um, Ryan, if I could, before I let you go, we like to always ask our authors um, as a final question, what are you working on next?
0: Well, i be honest, I... Thought uh, I needed a break from Wales. I'd written and thought a lot about Wales, but uh, I ended up deciding to write a global history of humans and whales. Uh, and uh, for many of the reasons that you mentioned, earlier, really, the ways so that whales have been connected to globalization throughout history, and it's given me a chance to write about other places that I've uh, that I really love in this world that I've never been able to write about, like Brazil, which is and about uh, whaling in Brazil at the moment, uh, Russia will play a role as well.
1: Well, thank you very much. I will look forward to reading that. And it sounds like you have designed a project that requires some really terrific research travel as well. Very smart of
0: you. That, that's only half the reason that I'm
1: doing <laughs> No, of course. Um, Ryan, thank you so much for your time. And to all of you, thanks for listening and go get yourself a copy of Red Leviathan. Okay. Bye-bye.